Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, Bad Dirt. What makes Bad Dirt so bad? The answer? The ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like Bad Dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man who has agreed to play out the rest of the season on the franchise tag. Here is the captain. Oh, honey. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Today, we are still sipping on pulp friction from the motor works brewing if you like citrus grapefruit and a beautiful golden and orange brew you're going to love pulp friction which took the gold medal at the 2017 best florida beer championship garage grade three and three quarter bottle caps out of five and here's some praise and thank you that goes out to our good friends that helped us with this week's beer run and those are First up, a cheers to Melissa in Fort Myers, Florida. And a big shout out to Pamela in Hillsdale, New Jersey. And next we have hailing from the beautiful Parts Unknown, we have Teresa Bauer. Everyone we mentioned helped us fill up the fridge for this week's shows, and for that, we thank you. Yep, 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 B-W-E-W-R-U-N, Beer Run. Make sure you go to our website, sign up on our mailing list. If you need more True Crime Garage for your earballs, check out our bonus show called Off the Record. And also, if you want to keep the lights on, go to the store page, get yourself some swag. You'll be looking good in that swag. That's enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. South Florida counties in the mid-90s were rocked by the disturbing discovery of five disfigured and mutilated bodies in three different locations across the cities of Northport and Port Charlotte. 
This between 1994 and 1996, five bodies were discovered, but it was the last one which was the first to be identified. All five cases were considered homicides. Two of the five victims at this point in our timeline are identified. And along with autopsy reports, it was believed that the killer was preying on vulnerable young male victims who were either transient or homeless. Now, one victim that was identified was Richard Montgomery, who was killed a short time before his body was discovered. This would make his case quite a bit different from the others, and the police were gearing up to try to track down the persons known to Mr. Montgomery to find out what they could possibly know about his murder. And what they find is some great witnesses for the Montgomery case. Here's what they learned. They find two witnesses that say that they had seen Mr. Montgomery the day before his body was found in the woods. According to these witnesses, these were people that knew Mr. Montgomery to some degree. They said that he told friends the night that he disappeared that he had a gig. He had a job that was going to pay him $200. And he was last seen by his friends standing by a rural road waiting for someone, waiting to meet someone. But it sounds more like he was waiting for someone to meet him and pick him up at that location. Then, of course, we know that Mr. Montgomery was found dead the next day. Police also learned that Richard Montgomery lived with his sister and they could place the victim with some other individuals. This is Bobby Whitaker and Gary Mason and some other friends the day before when he mentioned that he was going out to make a few hundred dollars and would be back shortly. When asked by somebody in the group if whatever he was up to was illegal, Mr. Montgomery simply smiled. Mr. Montgomery also told his mother that someone had offered to pay him $200 to pose for nude pictures, but he did not tell her who made the offer. Right. In this same conversation with his mother, Montgomery mentioned that he had recently met a man named Daniel Conahan, who lived in Punta Gorda Isles and was a nurse at a medical center. The last time Friends saw Montgomery alive was on April 16th between 4 p.m. and 7 p.m. Weeks later, in May of 1996, two witnesses came forward to point out that Dan Conahan is likely to be the last person that they were aware of to be in contact with the now deceased Richard Montgomery. Again, he was the fifth body found. But this is huge because we can identify one of the victims and we have some people that knew the victim. While still working to piece these alarming details together, an unexpected call came in to law enforcement. This may be from one of the strangest places that they would think to possibly get a break in their case. This call came from an incarcerated individual who told the police he knew who had murdered Richard Montgomery. Well, and if this guy is credible... This could be a huge break for law enforcement. The person who calls in is a one David A. Payton. So the next big break in this case came on May 8th, 1996, that from a prison inmate located in Moorhaven. And this was David A. Payton who had a story for the detectives. David Payton told police 
that before he was locked up, he said that he would cruise the streets of Fort Myers, Florida, and hustle gay men for money. He told detectives that in March of 1995, he was picked up by a person that he identified as Dan Conahan. He said Dan gave him drugs and alcohol and asked if they could drive to a remote area to take some photos of David Payton naked and tied to a tree. This is an incredible detail and graphic account of this incident. And this is all from a fantastic website called Twisted Florida. It's a blog about several different true crime stories from the Florida area. Yeah, I recommend this blog. Which I love Florida, Captain, especially the beach communities there. But Florida is as weird as any state when it comes to true crime. Well, so. you love to go on vacation there. And uh, and because of you, you have shined so much light on the, the crimes in Ohio. So basically, the two places you go most of the time have some weird cases, suspicious, a little bit of a red flag. So I'll tell this portion of our true crime story as it is told on the Twisted Florida blog. Go on, kind sir. David Payton might have thought he was in for a good time when a stranger in a car rolled up alongside him and asked him if he wanted to smoke some joints. Peyton often spent his nights hanging out on the streets of Fort Myers. Hey, bro, you want to smoke some weed? That late evening in 1995, he accepted a man's offer and hopped into his car. What followed would not be a typical night in southwest Florida. As the two were coasting along US-41, Peyton noticed that while the quiet man in the driver's seat was supplying him with marijuana, Valium, and beer, the driver was not partaking himself. Little conversation was taking place between the two strangers until the man seemingly out of nowhere asked Peyton if he had ever had photographs taken of him, specifically nude photos. The stranger said he wanted to drive to the woods and take photos of Peyton's naked body tied up. Mm-hmm. Reaching over, he touched Peyton in a certain area and explained that the rope would not be Mm, flicky flicky and explained that the rope would be tied tightly, but not bad enough to hurt him. Yeah, right. Continuing on their drive, the two ended up on an out of the way dirt road in Charlotte County, Florida. They passed a couple of people in trucks with dogs and upon seeing them, the man became agitated and upset. This is the driver. The two moved along slowly until they hit a mud hole and the vehicle became stuck. When Peyton offered to go ask the other people that they had just seen for help, the man's demeanor darkened and he firmly said to not move from the car while he talked to them. Run for your life. Returning with another person to help push the car out of the hole, he directed Peyton to remain inside the vehicle. Alarmed, Peyton turned around and looking at his surroundings, he noticed a few disturbing items in the back seat of the vehicle. Items with a potentially chilling purpose. These items that he says he saw there, Captain, were a camera, a bag, a tarp, some rope, and a hunting knife. Well, the camera, maybe that doesn't throw up any red flags, but I don't like people having big trash bags in their car. So run for your life. Or, oh, you got some ropes, maybe run for your life. Or once you see a tarp, run for your life, get out of there, 
this is not a good place to be. I don't find myself in that vehicle at all. So it's hard for me to think past that part. Well, of yeah, our one, story. I'm not getting in the vehicle in the first place. Two, once you touch my purple headed yogurt slinger, I'm gone. But also when you say, hey, I'd like to take some nude photos of you tied up to a tree. Well, first of all, nobody nobody wants to see the captain nude. But second of all, you do not want to see me tied up naked on a tree. But Well, this guy driving this car, he does. Well, yeah. He, he, he sent me a couple. I've of, not asked him specifically this question, but I'm but here yeah. to tell you I would wager a $100 bill. Well, he does. Well, on the... <laughs> On our 600th episode, you just said the funniest thing that you've ever said. So I guess the next 600 shows, it's all uphill from here, ladies and gentlemen. But yeah, I, I'm not getting into that car. There's too many red flags. And, and if I get in that car, there's so many red flags that I am jumping out of the window for my life. This is what's going to push him over the edge. I don't know how scared or frightened he was or how off-put he was by any of the actions leading up to this i can simply simply uh regurgitating the story that's on twisted florida as they saw it. so he says peyton says that you know seeing these items he was already kind of getting frightened and he said driven by fear i had to make a split second decision and I'll tell you what this peyton guy now while i would not have gotten in the car this guy makes a great effort uh, here. This is a very smart move on Peyton's behalf. So what he does is as soon as this man, Dan Conahan, and this other person get the vehicle, remember the, the car is stuck in this mud hole. Right. As soon as these guys push it out, Peyton, he does as instructed by this this person that's been driving him around. Remember, Dan Conahan says, don't get out of the car. You yeah. say you are to remain in the vehicle. Well, David Payton remains in the vehicle. He just hops in the driver's seat and flees the area, takes the vehicle with him. Mm. So Smart move. he's driving off in this blue Mercury Capri and he's heading south on US 41 in the man's vehicle that, you know, the guy that had picked him up. But because of the drugs and the beer in his system, he was already having a hard time staying awake at the wheel as he's trying to flee this area. Well, and again, so it could be a situation where they start moving the, the car and he starts going, man, whatever this guy gave me is, is doing something to me. It's trying to pass me out, right? Like, well, I don't know if he's trying to pass him out. I think he's just plying him with drugs and alcohol so that this guy becomes an easier victim, even more vulnerable. And I mean, you're talking that combination as described by Peyton right. is volume, marijuana and beer. Well, party, you want to stay awake and drive a vehicle. You better get some toothpicks and, and keep your eyes pried open, your eyelids pried open there. <laughs> but, um, he says that he drove off the drugs are in his system. They're taking effect. He was having a hard time staying awake. Of course, this whole thing, there's no real violence here. What happens is you would think that maybe, or as the good people at Twisted Florida wrote, that Peyton would contact the authorities after such a strange and frightening experience. But the flip side of that coin is, ironically, it was not Peyton who contacted the police, but rather Dan Conahan, who was the owner of the rope and the knife and the tarp, uh, 
he lost very little time in contacting police. And this is because he was driving his father's vehicle. Right. So when he comes home without his father's vehicle, because his, this person that he picked up made off with the vehicle, he contacts the police and says, Hey, someone stole my father's car. And here is a story or my version of the story as it goes. Unfortunately, soon after David Payton reached Fort Myers, Florida, he's picked up and arrested for the stolen vehicle. So now he's telling police what happened that night and they don't believe Payton's story. Dan Conahan, he reports his father's car is stolen on the, on that same night. And he, his story was very different. He said that the theft happened when he stopped on the side of the road and he went to relieve himself. Now, an initial background check of Dan Conahan revealed that he was an unemployed licensed practical nurse who had previously worked at Charlotte Regional Medical Center. He had formerly served in the military until being discharged. He was currently living with his parents in Punta Gorda. So they didn't believe David Payton's story. Peyton's defense attorney at the time told him to take the plea or he was going to be risking more time in prison. So with no support on his side, David Peyton pled guilty to vehicle theft and was sentenced to two years in prison. So now we fast forward to May of 1996. David Peyton, still incarcerated, tells authorities, hey, I know who committed the hog trail murders. It's the same person that picked me up a year before, took me to a road not well-traveled, and told me that he wanted to take nude pictures of me tied up. And, of course, he's not able to identify the man by name, uh, I'm guessing maybe even on this phone call. He's certainly not able to identify the person driving the vehicle that night as it happened. But when you later plead guilty to stealing the car you know who filed the police report. So, of course, police have that man's name from the police report of that stolen Mercury, which ended up leading them to Daniel Conahan Jr. Right, and you have to remember where he jumped into the driver's seat and drove off to escape where they claim that he stole the vehicle from was only a few miles from one of the dumping sites where they found all those bodies. Well, let's just think for a second how bad that would suck. You you get in the car. You, you shouldn't have got in the car, but you got in the car. You took some drugs. They're doing some stuff to you. This guy's acting strange. He's talking to you about taking pictures of you nude tied to a tree. He has this knife in his car. That You get stuck. You jump in the driver's seat. You take off. You get arrested. The cops don't believe you, and now you're sentenced to two years in jail. Well, I mean, maybe you'd feel lucky at that point, like, Look, I could have been murdered. And then you would think at some point that this person, after this situation happens, then kind of sees different things in the news that would make him believe that he escaped death. Yeah, after all, it was it was he, the inmate, that contacted police and said, hey, I know who I think did this. And then, you know, let's go back to some of the other unique details of these cases. You know, we have police who are working these as they are, in fact, connected. Due to the unique nature of the homicides and the fact that they believe and have proof of 
the victims being tied to a tree, tied naked to a tree, and then strangled, the police are reviewing similar assault reports from the recent past. And we talk about this so many times when we cover cases like this and unsolved cases of serial offenders. You have to remember, in the cases that are solved, it's not something that happens in every single case, but it happens often. And sometimes it's not until the guy's already in handcuffs or already on trial or even after the fact that he gets locked up. Right. But often we find the one who got away. Yeah, Ryan Gosling. There's usually somebody who got away, that managed to survive a serial killer, and they're able to give us great insights into the other attacks that happened on victims that weren't so lucky. So one such report, if in fact police were looking for one that got away or similar types of crimes, they come across this report that is from August 15th, 1994. So it falls into our general timeline, right? The 94 to 96 seems to be the, the span of concern here. Right. And I have a very kind of basic version of this story, but I'll go through what I have here, Captain. It says Stanley Burden was a high school dropout who had difficulty keeping a steady job. The assault report indicated that Burden met Dan Conahan, who offered to pay him $100 to $150 to pose for nude photographs. Burden agreed, and Conahan drove him to a rocky dirt road in a secluded area where Conahan pulled out a duffel bag with a tarp and a Polaroid camera. The two men headed into the woods where Conahan laid the tarp out and asked Burden to take off his shirt. After taking numerous pictures of Burden, Conahan then took out a new package of clothesline so he could get some bondage pictures. He asked Burden to step close to a nearby tree and then clipped the clothesline in several pieces draping them over Burden to make it look like bondage. Conahan moved behind Burden, snapped the rope tightly around him, pulled his hands behind the tree, placed the ropes around his legs and chest, and wrapped the rope twice around Burden's neck. Conahan then performed a sex act on Burden and attempted to sodomize him. After many unsuccessful attempts, Conahan snapped the rope around Burden's neck, placed his foot against the tree and pulled on the rope in an attempt to strangle Burden, who tried to slide around the tree to keep his windpipe open. Conahan hit Burden in the head. This dude is an absolute savage. I mean, he is a sick SOB. Eventually, he gives up on this attack. Conahan seems to get frustrated as the two are struggling back and forth in the woods, and he gives up on this attack. And he leaves the area. But he left this man tied up to the tree. Right. Now, who knows how long he would have been there. The way that Burden describes it, it sounds to me like he leaves Conahan, that is, leaves mid-struggle. Who knows? I wasn't there. And again, this is a brief description. Maybe Conahan thought he had successfully choked the guy to death. Sure you weren't. Using the rope. But regardless, what we know ends up happening is this Burden guy gets extremely lucky that Conahan left something at the scene. It was like a set of pliers or something that somehow in a struggle, he was able to reach these 
pliers. I don't know if he used his, his foot to grab them off of the ground, but he's able to use these pliers to help pry himself loose from the rope and from the tree. And he, he, he managed to escape with his life uh, in that way. Now, it's uncertain to me. What, what is unclear through all of this is they have this assault report that was filed by this individual, by Stanley Burden. But I'm curious if that because we're reading it after the fact that they've retroactively applied Dan Conahan's name to this report, because it seems like Conahan should have been arrested and charged with something knowing that he filed this police report, but it doesn't seem like that ever happened. So it's very likely that this victim, Stanley Burden, didn't know the man who picked him up and who tried to kill him there in the woods. Yeah, so even though he didn't know him, so he couldn't say, hey, well, it was John, it was my buddy John, they were able to have him identify, he was able to identify Dan Conahan through a police lineup. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number 
along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors Fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, we are back. Can't believe we made it this far. It's all because of you, but make sure you subscribe to the podcast and make sure you tell a friend so we can reach another 600 episodes. Cheers to you, Colonel. Cheers, Captain. Now, remember our inmate, David Payton, who called police, says, hey, I know who killed Richard Montgomery. They hear his story. They are aware that well, we charged you with stealing Dan Conahan's father's vehicle. So we do know that you know this individual or spent, you know, some deal of time with him, even if you were in fact guilty of stealing the car, or if you say what happened happened, they can clearly connect the dots between Peyton and Dan Conahan. Now what happens here is they're like, you know what, we better double check everything before we really start investigating this guy. 
We have other people mentioning Dan Conahan's name to law enforcement as well in regard to Richard Montgomery's murder. They hook Peyton up to a lie detector test. He passes the test. And so with that, they decide, hey, that's enough for investigators to put a tail on Dan Conahan. They want to start their investigation, but they're going to surveil Dan Conahan for some time before before they take the investigation any further. Well, it's smart on law enforcement's part to, hey, we don't know if we should believe him. Let's give him a polygraph. At least they give us some kind of barometer of if we can trust him or not. Yeah, and they're going to use that information to start to tail Dan Conahan. And they start by going to the condo where he shared uh, a living space with his father in Punta Gorda. And the detectives, they discover very quickly that he has some erratic driving behaviors. He's always out driving. He often pulled U-turns. He stopped on side streets and parking lots. They wondered if he was aware that they were trailing him or if he just did these types of maneuvers because he was worried that somebody may be tailing him. You see what I mean? Like not necessarily any awareness that somebody is in fact doing it, but as a just in case. So they decide very quickly that they're going to put a tracking device on this vehicle. In fact, soon after they received David Payton's information, police began monitoring Dan Conahan and a mobile tracking device was placed on that vehicle. They say every time he left his house, we had six cars bracketing him yeah one of the best tips i've ever heard from law enforcement is if you think somebody's following you do four left turns or four right turns they had dan conahan's home under 24-hour surveillance with both human eyeballs on the team as well as video cameras surveilling this condo where he lived at with his parents at all times they say that they surveilled him for 50 days And they had two separate instances when they had undercover detectives who posed as homeless men who stood on the side of US-41. And while they were wearing a wire, Dan actually approached these two men and asked them about going to have them pose for nude pictures in the woods. Uh Aha. Aha. Feels like a Gotti moment. Some more details about that is one detective said that he was asked if he was into modeling and Dan told him that he liked to take photos with a theme of progressive bondage. And then we have a second undercover detective that put himself in Conahan's path and he said he too was propositioned with cash if he would pose naked for some pictures. Now, they couldn't get these two undercover detectives they could never get him to take them to the actual to any place in the woods or out in any of these locations. They were hoping to have him do that. The interesting thing here, though, too, is if you look at the situation and you have these five victims, and I know we're talking about a span of, of two years or so in which we had these five victims, but with the 50 days of surveillance they're really hoping to catch this dude red-handed is what it tells me. And unfortunately that means that based off of the crime scenes and how decomposed some of their victims were, they likely didn't have much in the way of physical evidence against Dan Conahan. 
they were able to trace some of that fiber evidence that they had and some paint chip evidence that they had found at the crime scene and on some of the murdered victims back to Dan Conahan, back to the vehicle that he was using and back to the home that he shared with his parents. Right. So that gives us some kind of physical evidence. The other troubling thing, they were able to subpoena Dan Conahan's credit card records and they were able to see his purchases and his purchases are lining up with some of these stories of, of what people called in mainly Stanley Burden's story. Then also David Payton's story where they got credit card statements showing that Dan Conahan purchased clothesline rope, Polaroid film pliers, a utility knife, this all in the area. And they also found that he was using ATM machines located close to the areas where he was propositioning these men and picking them up. Yeah, because he doesn't have to give them the money, but he might need to show them the money. Correct. So, he, so, so not only does he have this kill kit, but he has the tools of the trade to also document the kill. And then also, like you said, the, the ATM to have the money on hand so he could show these individuals, hey, I got the $200. So armed with all of these statements of the witnesses that led up to the Richard Montgomery murder and then the two statements of the individuals that survived Dan Conahan and that physical evidence and these credit card statements and ATM statements, this is enough for them to make an arrest. They arrest him and they are going to charge him with the assault on Stanley Burden and also the murder of Richard Montgomery. Ultimately, the Stanley Burden case, the the assault case, they dropped the charges on that case. And I think it's a rather complicated matter and we, we still have quite a bit to get to. So I don't want to go through the details of that. Uh, people are certainly welcome to find those on their own. Now, while they are awaiting trial for Dan Conahan, another skeleton was found in Charlotte County. 10 months later, DNA identified the remains as a one William Charles Patton. Uh, who disappeared in 1993. So if, in fact, this William Charles Patton murder is connected to Dan Conahan, this would be likely the earliest one to date in our timeline. This man disappeared in 1993. At this point in our timeline, Captain, we're bringing up murder charges against this guy only for one murder, that being of Richard Montgomery. Right. Four other victims that we believe are connected to Dan Conahan, but three of them still hadn't been identified at this point by the time they go to trial against this guy that they believe is a serial killer. And like what you were stating the other day, that some of these victims were put out there, and then once they were discovered, then another victim was put out there. So we didn't believe that the victims were just all out there at the same time and law enforcement didn't find them. They were finding the victims as he was dumping them. But that does not mean, because we got miles of wooded area, that doesn't mean that they found all the victims that could be connected to this, like I said, psychopath, psychopathic killer. It would take a couple years, but in 1999, Dan Conahan was found guilty. He was found guilty on first-degree premeditated murder charges and kidnapping. 
And in December of 99, he was sentenced to death. He is currently still alive, and he is being held at the Union Correctional Institution in Rayford, Florida. And if you look him up online, the, the, the one of the first sentences and first paragraphs that will come up is that he is convicted of one murder, but suspected in six-plus murders. Now, depending on who you talk to, that number can vary to a great degree. That's because several more bodies were discovered in the Charlotte County area with similarities to the Hog Trail killings. There was one victim found in 2000, two victims found in 2001, and an additional one found in 2002. Now that's going to lead us up to this horrific discovery, which took place on March 23rd, 2007. This is when eight skulls and skeletal remains were found in a wooded area in Fort Myers. This is reported to be the largest such discovery in the state of Florida's history. And you had referenced this, Captain, in episode one, where this case has some things that reminds one of the West Mesa body pit or the Long Island serial killer case. Right. What happens in the discovery of all of these bodies? Well, we can get the details straight from an article that is titled Fort Myers Police Seek Clues in Deaths. The skeletal remains of eight people were found in a wooded area about 25 feet from an unpaved section of Arcadia Street in East Fort Myers. So to give one some perspective of distance here, I don't have the exact locations of where the first five victims were found. And then we have a sixth potential victim that is found leading up to Conahan's trial. We have four other victims that are found in the early part of the 2000s. And then we have eight that are discovered together. These eight are, are discovered in a relatively small space, but right. it could be upwards of 20 to 30 miles from where some of the other bodies were found. And keep in mind, these, these eight bodies are being discovered what, over 10 years after Dan Conahan was arrested. Yeah. So these deaths have been worked as a homicide, all eight of them. And they believe, police believe this to be a body dump location. In fact, it was somewhat obvious early on. We have a quote here from one of the officers involved that says, it certainly sounds like a dump site, but having said that, you would now have to determine whether they were murdered and dumped killed at that location and left there or just bodies illegally disposed of. One could make an argument that these are connected to the other victims. I think you make a strong argument that they're not. And this is probably the working of a, a entirely different serial killer just in the same area. Well, and that's where we kind of find ourselves left here in this case. Because there are many people that argue that these eight skeletons that were found together, these victims would go on to be known as the Fort Myers Eight, 
that they are all just other victims of Dan Conahan, right? He's the easiest one to go. Well, he was active in this area and active believed to be about the same time that maybe some of these victims went missing. Yeah. I wish we could put a time period on, on the deaths because that would give us a sense of if these were before or after the victims. Well, that's interesting here, Captain, because what we have here is um, some kind of it, it's it's really sad information because in in the first set of bodies that are found that we covered extensively, there are still some of those victims that are unidentified. Of this Fort Myers eight, I've seen reports that three of them have been identified. I've seen reports that only two of them have been identified. Uh, the, the more concrete information that I have in front of me is that two were later identified as men who disappeared in 1995, which would certainly fall into the Dan Conahan timeline that we were working with, with his sus- other suspected right. victims, which we should say other suspected victims because Dan Conahan, of course, was spoken to very quickly after the discovery of these bodies. It wasn't lost on police that, hey, we have a known serial killer that's locked up that may be responsible for these additional murders. And yeah, and he has a life sentence. So is it a possibility that he's going to come forward and confess? It's possible. The The problem with Dan Conahan is he's he's only been convicted of one murder. He's suspected of many more, obviously. Mm -hmm. He's never admitted to even the one that he's been convicted for. Right. He's admitted to killing zero people. And with the amount of decomposition and evidence lost due to time and weather and other items as well, it doesn't appear that the police have any evidence to connect Dan Conahan to the Fort Myers 8. My problem with the Fort Myers 8 is that they're they're Buried in shallow graves, they say what less than two feet no, deep, less than two inches. Oh, sorry, of dirt. Yeah, less than two inches of dirt. So th- this is, doesn't go with the signatures of his other crimes. The problem with the signatures of his other crimes, though, is those signatures are are not. There's no way of knowing. So the. Right. The the burying of the body necessarily isn't you can look at it as a potential signature or as a potential M.O., which are two very different things. But it could fall into either one of those categories based off of the psychology of the killer. But because we don't know the killer and can't say for certain, it's hard to really hone in on that psychology. So the, the problem with with looking at signatures and comparing them from. Richard Montgomery to the Fort Myers eight right. is these are skeletal remains. His signatures, Dan Conahan's signatures as they were on victim, Richard Montgomery are all based off of there still being skin. Very true on our victim. Yeah. Where we can see the ligature marks where we can see that there was a portion of the body amputated or removed, cut off. Right. None of that is available for us to to view or even speculate on in regard to the Fort Myers 8 because they're all skeletal remains. The problem is I, I don't think we can look at this situation and say, nope, 
can't be Dan Conahan because the signatures don't match up. The, the issue being, when we talk about burying somebody in two inches of dirt, one, we don't know how long they've been there. Police have outwardly said that this could simply be due to flooding in the area or changes in the area over time that maybe necessarily they were just left on the ground and these changes occurred due to the passing of time. Right. The other thing that they point out, the the officers that do believe that the Fort Myers eight were in fact buried in these shallow graves. If, if we were to call it that, that's how it's referred to in some of the news articles and reporting on this case. But I think that paints a whole entirely different picture than what police say that they saw at the scene. At the scene of the Fort Myers 8, they're saying that it they wouldn't even go as far to calling it burying somebody, more as somebody just took the time to throw some dirt, leaves, and sticks over top of the bodies before right. leaving the area. Yeah, but it's it's also different in the sense of the other victims are not found in a cluster like like these victims are or as close of a cluster as these victims are yeah with john doe one four and five and obviously four and five were later identified i would call that a body cluster i I believe it was gary ridgeway the green river killer who referred to some of his kills and and where he left remains as body clusters this to me with the fort myers eight that's that's eight people all together in one location. Who's to say that he wasn't spreading out uh, at some point. The other thing too, is he, you could look at it as if he did all of these, well, maybe he was evolving or devolving, whichever way you want to look at it. Maybe his crimes evolved to something else or devolved that he was getting lazier with how he was choosing to conceal the bodies. Right. Then on the flip side of that, though, you still have the possibility because we don't know who these victims are, because we don't know who is in fact responsible. You could have had two killers working at approximately the same time with similar, similar victimology. You could have a copycat situation. Now it's been reported that with the Fort Myers, eight again, many of them still to this day, not identified, uh, but they put the possible span of murders from as early as 1987 and one or two, maybe as late as 2001, which is super scary because we know that Dan Conahan was locked up in 1996. So if, if this, again, this is all speculation, they're not basing any of this off of scientific fact, but let's say this speculation is correct. And one or two of these murders happened that late. Well, Dan Conahan was already locked up and incarcerated at that time. So he couldn't have been responsible for those later murders and therefore would make it even much more difficult to believe him to be responsible for any of the Fort Myers eight. Where we stand is we have the psychopath in jail for life convicted of one murder. Now, if you put all the victims that they found together that they don't have somebody in jail responsible for that's 18 victims. And then, and we've both said, I think you could make a strong argument uh, that all of them are connected and whether you want to put the, the eight of the Fort Meyer eight in your, in there, uh, there's a strong argument. I think either way. Right. And with one situation, I mean, you look at John Doe number five, who's identified as Richard Montgomery 
and John Doe number four, who is identified as Kenneth Smith. Well, those two victims are found 50 yards apart from one another. One was killed the day before he was found, and one was killed just weeks before he was found. And that's very difficult to say, well, whoever did the killing of Richard Montgomery didn't kill Kenneth Smith. It's you, it, you would have to go out of your way to be able to prove that. Right. I think what, what to me that shows is the difference in the degree of what they were able to work with in their investigation with Richard Montgomery. He was killed so shortly before he was found. They were able to piece together a series of events that made a, 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 a courtroom only deliberate for less than 30 minutes before sentencing this guy to death where the case that happened just weeks before Richard Montgomery's death and murder, that of Kenneth Smith, there's so much evidence already lost to time just weeks prior that one loses very little confidence in all these other murders that likely happened months or maybe even a year or two before that of Richard Montgomery. Now, one piece of good information, or, or good news anyway, occurred last year when authorities tell us in July of 2021 that using genetic genealogy, they have, in fact, positively identified one more of the unidentified victims here. This is more than 27 years after his mutilated and decomposed body was found in a wooded area of South Florida. They say now that John Doe number one was 31 year old Gerald who went by Jerry Anthony Lombard. So now they've identified John Doe number one, and now they are tasked with trying to connect him to his alleged killer. You could be anywhere, but you choose to be right here. And we thank you. Colonel, do we have any recommended reading for the beautiful listeners? Today, we will be recommending Boogeyman by Stephen Jackson. Boogeyman, he was every parent's nightmare. This is the true story of a detective that refused to let some cases go cold. He tracked down a serial killer and put him behind bars. Check out Stephen Jackson's great book, Boogeyman. You can find that great title and many other wonderful recommendations on our recommended page at truecrimegarage.com. Yeah, I'm going to write a book called Boogerman. It'll be out next year. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter. Here you are, BPM's high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue 
panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. 